Presta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a very good afternoon it is. I'm Al Cresta, glad to be with you for another hour, talking about the things that matter most. And let me tell you where we're heading today. We're going to have an outstanding Old Testament scholar from the University of Notre Dame joining me, Dr. Gary Anderson. Uh, he's, he's been doing intense research on the tabernacle uh, stories in the uh, book of Leviticus, um, Exodus, and he draws parallels between the tabernacle narratives and the Incarnation. It is interesting, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we find that the Word became flesh and, quote, dwelt among us. And that uh, word dwelt is uh, often translated as tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And there are parallels between the building of the tabernacle, uh, God's indwelling of the tabernacle, the service at the tabernacle, uh, there are parallels between that and incarnation and atonement in the New Testament. So, uh, Gary has published That I May Dwell Among Them. That's the name of the book we're going to be looking at. Also, I'll be talking about uh, a toxic, wrong-headed approach to race which is embodied in Robin DiAngelo's best-selling book. It's been out for six years now, White Fragility. Uh, this is a book that jump-started the all-white people are de facto racists uh, a trend. Uh, going to talk about a major fallacy in her thinking and her carelessness as well. Uh, she can't even look at the uh, Michelangelo's... <laughs> brilliant uh, <clears throat> painting of the Sistine Chapel. And she sees that as she finds white supremacy there. Okay, it's, it's, it's weird. But that's coming up as well. Right now, though, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, February 13th. It's the Feast of St. Catherine de Ricci. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avimaria.edu. Pope Francis is stressing the importance of family and friends when we're ill. In his Angelus Sunday, the Pope commemorated the World Day of the Sick. He prayed for those denied access to health care, including those living in poverty and those living in territories of war. The Senate is approving a $95 billion package with large carve-outs for Israel and Ukraine. 60 votes were needed to push the package through in overnight voting. Despite passing on a 70-29 to 29 vote, its fate in the Republican-controlled House is far from guaranteed. The Supreme Court is giving special counsel Jack Smith one week to respond to former President Trump's request to keep his federal election trial on hold. The high court ordering Smith to respond by February 20th. This after Trump's legal team Monday filed an emergency motion urging the justices to block a lower court ruling that said he doesn't have presidential immunity from the indictment. 
The House is nearing an impeachment vote for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's the second Republican attempt to impeach Mayorkas over his handling of the southern border after a similar vote failed last week. GOP leaders accuse him of willfully refusing to enforce immigration laws. Hotter-than-expected inflation data is causing the Dow to lose over 500 points at the close. The Nasdaq was down nearly 2%. And Super Bowl 58 was the most-watched telecast ever. Sunday's matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers drew an average of over 123 million average viewers across all platforms, with CBS drawing 112 million, the largest audience in the history for a single network. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Yes, I did watch the Super Bowl. How could I not? After the... 49ers beat the Detroit Lions uh, and kept the Lions from going to the Super Bowl, which would have been a miraculous season. Uh, Yes, there's a lot of Lions uh, sentiment here uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. All right, Robin D'Angelo. This is the author of a toxic, wrong-headed book on racism called White Fragility. She published it in 2018. It jump-started the all-white-people-are-de-facto-racists idea. She found a place offering corporate seminars on diversity, inclusion, and equity for major corporations who put their employees through self-flagellating, anti-racist, damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't self-analysis. And she did made a lot of money at it. The University of Connecticut, for instance, paid her $20,000 to teach at a seminar. Uh, This is pointed out in National Review by Kayla Barch. Um, And, you know, this is... uh, So if you deny you're a racist, the very fact of your disagreement shows that you're a racist. It's like the old witch trials. If you admit you're a witch, you confirm the accusation. You're a self-confessed witch. But also, if you deny that you're a witch, that shows that you're a liar. And that's further evidence that you're a witch, or in this case, a racist. And this kind of thinking prevents real dialogue, puts everybody on edge. I remember a friend of mine who had adopted two black children. And I remember someone trying to interfere with his adoptions, uh, accusing him of being racist because he adopted those black children and were depriving them of their own home black culture. When he pressed for a definition of black culture, that became evidence of how he was unfit to father these black children. It was unbelievable. Thankfully for the children, he stuck to his guns. Now, just as a side note here, I don't doubt that black children being raised by white parents may present some different challenges. But does anyone really believe that it's better for a black child to remain without a parent than to be adopted by a loving white family? I mean, this kind of thinking seems so old and tiresome. For Robin D'Angelo, though, racism is not merely a set of negative attitudes about minorities. It's more akin to a spiritual illness that afflicts virtually all white people. Now, here's a taste of her own thinking in her own words from a podcast called Not Your Ordinary Parts, hosted by Jalen Johnson, who described the purpose of the book 
of his podcast. Uh, it's for a black man determined to get vulnerable, feel his feelings, talk about his emotions, heal, and inspire others to do the same. He's talking uh, with Robin D'Angelo. What exactly is white supremacy? It's a highly descriptive sociological term for a society that holds up white people as the standard for what is human, as the ideal of of humanity, right? So every everyone else is a deviation from that ideal. So that white people are just people and you're a black person. And when I'm doing a presentation, the single image I use to capture the concept of white supremacy is Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, God creating man. You know, where, where God is in a cloud and there's all these angels and he's reaching out and he's touching, I don't know who that is, David or something. <laughs> and God <laughs> is white and David's white and the angels are white. Like that, that is the perfect convergence of white supremacy, patriarchy. Right. You know, both you and I, let's imagine, I don't know how you were raised. I was raised Catholic. So I saw many images like that as a child. So I'm sitting in church and I'm looking up and I see these images. I don't think to myself, oh, God is white. But that's that's in in a lot of ways, it's power. Right. I I don't need to. God just reflects me. Right. I, I always belong racially to what is seen, what is depicted as the human ideal. And so white supremacy is that concept is in our language. It's in our movies. It's in our stories. It's in, I'm just reading a book right now. The only people in this book whose skin colors are named are those who aren't white. Now, there's a lot of silliness here. But let me point out the fallacy that ought to be obvious to most people hearing her. While it is true that those with feelings of white supremacy may presume that white is the norm, it's also true that people with no feelings of supremacy will describe members of a minority group by the characteristic that distinguishes them from the majority. So yes, if the prevailing racial category is white, and someone enters the scene who is not white, he is identified by the most obvious characteristic that distinguishes him from the group. Uh, no malice intended. This is true no matter what group predominates. And it's true no matter what group is in the minority. So, for instance, Mildred D. Taylor penned a series of novels published by Dial Press about the Logan family from Mississippi. I think the most popular book in this series is called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and it follows a black family in Mississippi. It starts out in the Great Depression and eventually gets to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And in that book, when the, 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 those who are the subject of that book, when they talk about those who are in their school or church or neighborhood, they don't add black because everyone in the community is black. But sure enough, when a white person enters the neighborhood or the school, he's identified as a white person because he's entering a pretty uniformly black social group. Does that make the Logan family racist? I mean, this is a fatuous analysis. Um, the minority is described by the majority 
often according to the characteristic which most distinguishes them from the majority. No malice intended. Uh, And I'll tell you, these major corporations she's been working with for six years, I'll tell you, those who participate in those seminars need to fight back. We shouldn't take nonsense simply because it's fed to us as an antidote for attitudes from previous generations. Now, she, she... her carelessness is obvious. She mistook Adam, you know, the first man God created. I mean, the fresco is actually titled The Creation of Adam. She's careless enough not to recognize Adam in one of the greatest works of art in Western history. And this is what happens when people begin to think power is what governs all our relationships. You begin to play the barbarian. You can't be bothered with details or subtlety because everything comes down to who's in control. Who's oppressing who? Good and evil get reduced to the oppressed person is good, the oppressor is evil. Now, it's true that Western culture has a terrible history of racism and white supremacy, and it isn't hard to understand why. The West, that was the culture of exploration and, quote, discovery of other lands. It was the culture of the scientific revolution. It was the culture of individual rights. Uh, It was the culture that came to see itself as superior to African tribal cultures or Native American societies. And those Westerners were largely white. And the slave trade was part of their economy. So, yes, white supremacy is a term that can be used to describe Western culture from the Enlightenment forward uh, into the 20th century. And you'll find it among the great philosophers and scientists, less so among the theologians because they were tied to Scripture and God's creation of all humans in his image and likeness and the fact that Christ died for all. But there were theologians who tried to identify blacks as the descendants of Noah's son Ham, who Josephus describes as populating Africa and parts of Asia. But for for decades, uh, top scientists in the West tried to develop, quote, racial science, The United States and England both were involved in it. Hitler even commended the United States because he saw us as pioneers in racial science. Well, it didn't last long because it was humbug science. It was bogus science. Um, Now, she mentions that she was raised Catholic, and like a lot of mid-20th century Catholic kids, didn't really key into the faith and the institutional church, which seemed more interested in brick-and-mortar expansions and increasing the size of First Communion classes than in maybe making missionary disciples. But Kyle Barch, or excuse me, Kayla Barch, in National Review, goes after D'Angelo with some very basic Catholic catechesis. Kayla Barch recommends that D'Angelo visit the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth. If she wants to look at Catholic artwork and doesn't get the Sistine Chapel, go to the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth, The church was built at the site of Mary's traditional childhood home, where the Annunciation took place. And there you'll find a collection of mosaic panels that adorn the sanctuary. And there are dozens of depictions of Mary. These are artistic gifts from around the globe. And each portrait of Mary portrays the ethnic qualities of the group or country that contributed the art. In other words, this space demonstrates the universality of the Christian story. Christ came to free all human beings from sin. 
including the enmity that arises between nations and peoples. No longer would a person be judged negatively by his ethnicity, background, race, or socioeconomic status. The very notion of racial equality flows from Christian teaching. Luke writes in the book of Acts that, quote, God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know, Michelangelo painted God the Father as having a body, when in fact he knew that he was an immaterial being. He didn't have a body. (laughs) Michelangelo wasn't thinking in terms of racial categories that were constructed in 18th century Europe. The term white is meaningless when applied to Michelangelo's uh, painting. He's a 15th, uh, mid-16th century artist. Skin color had no cultural significance compared to the racial hierarchy that originally developed uh, later on in the West. But what's most galling is the blindness of people like Robin DiAngelo, who are so concerned about identifying and accusing her neighbor of racism that she fails to see the one who died to set us free from the very sinful attachments to race that she is herself now falling victim. I'll say it again. What's most galling is the blindness of people like Robin DiAngelo who are so concerned about identifying and accusing her neighbor of racism that she fails to see the one who died to set us free from the very sinful attachments to race that she is herself now falling victim. I'm Al Cresta. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. And we need to pray for all our world leaders and all those who are in such danger. See, in a day and age where people are getting further away from God, you get further away from goodness. Only God is good. Do you remember what our Lord said one day? Why do you call me good? He said, only God is good. Only God. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Believers who respond to God's Word and become members of Christ's body become intimately united to Him, the Catholic Catechism tells us. Through the sacraments, those who believe are intimately united with Christ in a very real and hidden way. The body's unity does not do away with the diversity of its members who engage in a diversity of functions. The unity of the mystical body triumphs over all human divisions. There are no Jews, no Greeks, no slave, no free man. All are one in the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body of the church, the principle of creation and redemption. We are united with Christ in his Passover. All his members must strive to resemble him until Christ is formed in them. 
This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Gary Anderson, is the Hesburgh Professor of Catholic Thought at the University of Notre Dame. His primary fields of study include Christianity, Judaism, and in antiquity. He has written Sin, a History, and Charity, the Place of the Poor in the Biblical Tradition, and most recently he's written That I May, that I May Dwell Among Them. Incarnation and Atonement in the Tabernacle Narrative. Gary, good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Well, I'll ask the obvious question. Why yeah. study the Tabernacle, tabernacle Narrative? Uh, only the genealogies are more tedious and boring. Yeah, that's a, a question that I get, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, let's just begin with the genealogy, actually. <laughs> okay. That, in a sense, is a good uh, uh, retort to that problem. Um, uh, at, at one level, yes, well, I can understand why people identify genealogies as boring, yet uh, one has to counterbalance that with the common-sense observation that one of the most popular pieces of software you can buy is a you know, family tree charter. <laughs> right. People love that. Why, people, in other words, genealogies by their nature are not intrinsically boring. In fact, people are endlessly fascinated by genealogies as long as the genealogy is about them. Right? Yes. So the problem in the Bible is that we often don't identify the characters and the people as us. 
Uh, so part of the problem, if we see them as us, um, then I think that takes away some of the difficulty of the genealogies. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have time this afternoon to go into this, but uh, many of the genealogies, not all of them, but many of them are ordered in a very you know intricate and actually theologically interesting uh, way. For example, I'll just give two examples. Um, there's a genealogy uh, at the end of Genesis 22, after the story of the binding of Isaac, uh, of the um, sons of Milcah and Nahor. Uh, and a couple of things are very important in that genealogy. First, that there are 12 children, which means that this relative of Abraham had a complete family uh, that matches up nicely against the biblical family. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, also, one would want to ask the question why this genealogy appears here when it would more logically have followed the story at the end of chapter 11, when we're, you know, Nahor and, and Abraham are introduced. Uh, well, it follows the story of the binding of Isaac, because it introduces eventually the bride of Isaac, and constitutes, in some senses, the reward for both Abraham and Isaac for uh, this stupendous sacrifice. They've prepared the way for Isaac to be married and then to begin his own family, and it's embedded right in the middle of that genealogy, and if you skip over it, you miss yeah. an hugely important point. But anyways, we're not here to talk about genealogies. Let's yeah. talk about the tabernacle. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you, you, your point is genealogies become interesting and important to us when we identify with them. That When we say, that's our people, that's me, <laughs> this is my background. That's exactly right. And um, the example I often give with respect to the tabernacle and its significance, there's much going on there, uh, but for the biblical writers and for people who revered these texts, uh, the important element in uh, the tabernacle story is the fact that God indwells it. Yeah. And as a result, there's a phenomenon that I have, you know, labeled, it's not a terribly sophisticated <clears throat> scholarly moniker, as it were, but ontological leakage, by which I mean the word ontological is a Greek word for being, coming from ontos, uh, and it means that the being of God uh, leaks or seeps into the building. Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? Every aspect of the building, according to the author of the tabernacle narrative, uh, has absorbed an aspect of the very being of God. And if I wanted to give maybe an analogy that might be closer to home for your uh, viewers or hearers, I guess I should say, people aren't viewing this, they're listening to it. Um, I came across a beautiful meditation by, you know, a person I had never heard of before uh, she appeared in the Magnificat, you know, a publication called Blessed Concepcion. Uh, have you heard of this person, a Mexican saint from I, the 20th century? I, it, it's vaguely familiar, but no, I know nothing. Con, she's known also as Conchita or Cabrera de Armida, if I pronounce the Spanish right. She passed away in 1937. Anyways, it was a beautiful reflection on the, um, the right of adoration. And near the end of the text that they printed in the uh, Magnificat, she says, O Jesus of the Eucharist, O consecrated host, and then the next line is really striking, O envied monstrance, O blessed ciborium, beloved of my heart. So she goes from the person of Jesus to Jesus' presence in the host, 
then to we might want to say the the leakage, leakage. <laughs> of Jesus into that monstrance. In other words, she praises the monstrance and all the Eucharistic vessels. Now that kind of piety goes all the way back to the early church. Yeah. And what's interesting when you see early church Christian theologians who we call the church fathers, the patristic writings. Uh, many of those documents will talk about the sacredness and holiness of all the objects that came in contact with uh, the blessed, you know, body and blood of Christ. And when they describe that, they describe that using language drawn from the tabernacle narrative, from all the vessels uh, that were, you know, made uh, in order to hold the, the sacrifices in that building. And it was a very logical thing for the Church to do, because they're very similar in terms of spiritual disposition. God indwelt that tabernacle just as he indwelt the person of Jesus, mm-hmm. and as a result, everything in that tabernacle shares something of the person of God who dwells there, just as everything that touches, as it were, the body of Jesus in the rite of adoration also shares something of his person, and it's, you know, proper and, in a sense, natural to revere it. Yes. And um, that's, I mean, if you wanted to get a basic thesis of at least half of my book, uh, that's it. So Mm. that the reason why the tactical narrative is as long and detailed as it is, is because the writers are imbued with this sense of awe, uh, that this building housed God. Yes. It, that's beautifully expressed, too, Gary. Uh, what people tend to do, and you address this in your book, is they see that uh, John, um, in the first chapter of his Gospel, verse 14, uh, tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and they say, oh, he tabernacled among us, and therefore... We don't have to worry about the old tabernacle, because we've got Jesus <laughs> as the tabernacle. And so, unfortunately, that's one way that we dismiss the significance of the old tabernacle. That's, I mean, I'm glad you raised that point, because what we just have, you know, a verse in John that makes this identification. Of course, the Gospel of John is full of temple imagery attached to the person of Jesus. Won't go through all of that. But a lot of it, you know, a colleague of mine, um, Christopher Seitz, described this as the New Testament deferring to the Old. In other words, it frequent, it'll make these typological pointers, but won't develop them. In other words, it presumes that the reader will go back yeah. um, and, uh, you know, carefully read those Old Testament passages now with the opportunity to learn more about Jesus. And in my book, I show that, you know, in the Christological debates uh, in the early Church, though it does say the Word dwelt among us, you know, how that Word dwelt among us was a highly contested question. And um, the Gospel of John, unfortunately, uh, didn't provide sufficient information Mm -hmm. uh, for early Church uh, theologians to articulate with the precision they needed uh, the relationship between uh, God and human flesh. And many of them, and in my book I discuss this, uh, Athanasius in particular, turned back to the tabernacle and temple texts 
in order to be able to pursue that question more deeply, because the Old Testament has, you know, pages and pages of information about the way in which God is related to the material world, which can easily be transferred to the relationship of Christ's person to his, you know, flesh. And so it's important for us then to not say that Jesus is uh, being tabernacling among us doesn't uh, uh, eliminate the significance of the tabernacle narratives. And we can go back and read those narratives um, in light of Christ's tabernacling among us. We can learn about the Incarnation from those tabernacle texts. Am I right? That's really the thesis of my book, and we can also, of course, learn much more, uh, certainly if you're looking at Christian art, about the um, person of Mary as well, who holds or houses Christ in her womb. Yes. Uh, The Church Fathers, you know, the New Testament, as we know, doesn't have a lot to say about uh, the person of Mary. It's uh, it's rather taciturn on that question, uh, and one of the places that the Church Fathers turned in illuminating her character uh, were these temple texts, because she was a living temple. Uh, her womb uh, held Christ, therefore everything, you know, about the purity of the temple as a place that could hold God was transferred to Mary. It's very difficult to understand her person as a, an expression of biblical faith, if you don't have those Old Testament correlates firmly marked in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm just curious, uh, does New Testament scholarship today take seriously those older texts? Well, <clears throat> yes and no. Those New Testament scholars who are interested in, you know, speaking of a overall biblical theology— Yes, they they do, and they are sympathetic with this, but unfortunately for probably 90% of biblical scholars, you know, they're really only interested in hoeing their own row. Okay. Uh, So there may be an acknowledgement that, yes, this material ultimately for Christian theology is important, uh, but generally what you hear from biblical scholars, unfortunately, is, you know, that's not what I do. Um, And... uh, what happens at the end of the day is actually it ends up that no one does this. No one <laughs> takes responsibility for correlating the two testaments in our you know present situation. And you know I think theologians are impoverished by this and lay people as well. Yeah, I I, I agree. Uh, Got to take a break. We'll continue. My guest, Dr. Gary Anderson, that I may dwell among them, incarnation and atonement in the tabernacle narrative. It is uh, a rich. Uh, work. Uh, uh, All I can say is it it bears intense uh, reading, and uh, I've been enjoying it. I'm not done with it. Hi, this is Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Did you know the single most important document to protect your medical wishes is a healthcare durable power of attorney? Without it, medical decisions may be left to strangers. My Life Angels creates your healthcare durable power of attorney available anywhere on mobile phones and alerts your loved ones if you are ever taken to the hospital emergency room. Use code AVE and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. 
Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friend's in need. He can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow, because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best. When in fact, he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Gary Anderson, is author of That I May Dwell Among Them, Incarnation and Atonement in the Tabernacle Narrative. And Gary, uh, 
it seems like you've got two thematic centers uh, to the tab. You identify two thematic centers to the tabernacle narrative, um, each marked by its own um, appearance of God or theophany. You've got the indwelling of the tabernacle, and you also have the service of God uh, at this altar. Uh, what's the relationship between the two? Well, that's a great question. So, I get part of the book is trying to make the point that the um, the, the seeing of God and the tabernacle is the place where God dwells mm-hmm. uh, is of equal significance to the serving of God at the altar. I think that most readers, when they approach this material, or if I discussed these two themes, would think of the building as simply, you know, a uh, a functional place, uh, a necessary place in the sense that, you know, it's the site where sacrifice occurs. Um, I think the biblical text itself kind of uh, overturns that prejudice the reader might, you know, bring to the text by giving both of those foci, as I try to say, you know, equal time. And I think, uh, going back to what we said earlier in the interview, I think that's the reason why the biblical text opens not with sacrifice, but with the building, and spends so much attention on the details of the building, and then complicates, as I try to say in the book, um, the kind of chronological flow of the story. Um, It's very difficult, actually, to plot uh, at many points in the tabernacle narrative what comes, you know, before and after in terms of a simple uh, chronological sequence. Mm -hmm. I think... That's an intentional. It's a you know. It's a beautiful intentional point within the uh, within the narrative itself, and I think it's really driving at a couple of points. One would be that you know once we arrive at the tabernacle narrative, we're in a sense at the culmination of creation itself. Um, and I mentioned in the book how this is repeated in the prologue of John, uh, the correlation of indwelling with creation that you know, aspect of John's Gospel is deeply embedded, you know, in the Old Testament as well. Uh, so when we get to the tabernacle narrative, in a sense, plotting of time becomes difficult, because in a sense, time stops. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, things are sorted out what might look at first in a haphazard way, uh, but it's not really haphazard. I think the point is, is that, you know, uh, this is a kind of time outside of time when God settles and dwells among, among His people. Uh, so part of the book is to demonstrate how that kind of, um, you might want to say, uh, that that literary attempt to destabilize the reader is actually driving at a very, you know, crucial theological point. Um, but within, going back to the point you made, yes, there's these two foci, uh, the altar service and then the indwelling, and, and both, you know, elements I try to, you know, provide a few surprises for my reader. <laughs> Well, uh, the um, by g- giving um, careful attention to the tabernacle stories uh, in uh, Leviticus and Exodus, um, how much of I guess I think people would want to know how how much of what I read there can I imagine connected to the incarnate Christ? What, what's pointed out that I can say, oh, that, that would, would an early um, Hebrew have, pious Hebrew, have thinking upon the tabernacle, serving at the tabernacle, 
would they have imagined the Incarnation? No, I think, well, I guess, you know, the Incarnation, I mean, one of the things I want to say about the, the relationship of the two Testaments, and I do this at the very end of the book, is um, there's a kind of paradox or conundrum, we might want to say, about the relationship of the two Testaments. At, at one level, once we get to the new, we've got something kind of totally new and uh, totally unexpected. Um, so the Jews of Jesus' day would have been expecting the uh, building of a third temple that would fulfill, for example, the visions we find uh, at the end of Ezekiel or in portions of uh, the end of the prophet Isaiah. Okay. Uh, but those expectations are completely upended, we might want to see in the new, in this kind of unexpected presentation of a temple in human form, Jesus. Uh, so, But once that happens, so we have this unexpected move that, let's say, readers of the Old Testament alone wouldn't have expected, mm-hmm. but once we make that identification that Jesus, as it were, is the kind of sight now of God's indwelling among his people, then a lot of the things that have been articulated in the Old Testament about the temple and the people all transfer to Jesus. And one of the places that this happens, that we haven't met, well, I alluded to it slightly with uh, Blessed Concepcion, is the, uh, you know, the theology of the church building, uh, the way in which the Eucharistic service, uh, the way in which we might call the sacerdotal offices, that is the priesthood, all of that develops. I mean, we know going back to the Reformation that the office of the priesthood became uh, quite contested then. What did the Reformers say? They said, well, if you look in the New Testament, uh, there's no reference to priestly leaders uh, right, in right. those books. Where do we get the notion of a priesthood? Well, we get it from the Old Testament. Yeah. And um, in Benedict's, one of his, uh, Pope Benedict XVI's last essays before he passed, he said that one of the problems in the modern era with the proper theology of the priesthood is the loss of the ability to read the Old Testament in its proper sense. Yeah. Um, because the early you know, Church Fathers, again, going back to Clement, which was a document written at the end of the first century, in fact, before some of the New Testament books had been completed. It's a very early book, and it already identifies uh, the um, leaders of the Church using the Levitical nomenclature, priest, high priest, you know, Levite, etc. Yeah. And uh, so this move is very early. Very so early. That's what happens. So we have, we have this completely new novel thing uh, that the temple, the expected third temple is, isn't coming. It's a person. Right. Uh, but once that person has appeared, uh, then, you know, well, how do we build a church in which we will revere his ongoing presence? in the Eucharist? Yes. Well, let's go back to the tabernacle. It's got all kinds of, you know, material there. And what are, how are we going to call our, you know, leaders charged with, you know, uh, uh, developing and leading the liturgy? Well, we're going to, again, pull all this language uh, from the Old Testament about priesthood and make it serve and fill out, again, what the New Testament has very little to say. And so if we've, you know, if we cut off the Old Testament or we don't attend uh, to these details, let's say, in the tabernacle narrative, uh, many of the things that happen on Sunday that, you know, are the life and foundation of our uh, church architecture, the liturgy, and our church leaders, we won't understand them. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is frustrating, the loss of that connection 
in our contemporary uh, reading of Scripture and our catechesis. You use an example. Um, you say one excellent, ex- excellent example of how the Old Testament continues to shape our understanding of the New. One excellent example of this can be seen in the role played by the temple in Athanasius' letter to uh, Adelphius. Um, right. Tell, tell us about that. So the problem there has to do <clears throat> with the various controversies that are afloat uh, in the um, in the fourth century, and uh, Athanasius is, you know, uh, trying to, you know, um, fend off people who are interested in separating or making a, you know, a harsh distinction between the flesh of Jesus and the Godhead who resides within Jesus. And for Athanasius, uh, we can't really, you know, draw a dividing line between the two. The flesh, as it were, is divinized uh, by the divine presence. Right. And so the example he uses, again, the Gospel of John is not sufficient for the day, because the heretics appeal to that as well. Uh, so Athanasius says, well, let's just take a look at what happens in the Old Testament. Uh, people were, uh, by dint of scriptural command, uh, supposed to go to Jerusalem and venerate the God of Israel. How did they venerate the God of Israel? Uh, well, they prostrated themselves before a building made of stones. Now, they didn't confuse the stones with the God who dwelt within, uh, but they also weren't satisfied to just revere that God, you know, apart from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it was that building where God was located, and, you know, the stones were part of uh, uh, the way in which God occupied, you know, material space. And Athanasius says, well, it's the same analogy for Christ. Um, his actual human flesh, skin and bones, as it were, weren't, you know, God themselves. They were human flesh, but they absorbed something of his person, and mm-hmm. revering his person is exactly analogous to this, you know, Old Testament uh, image. So uh, the worry in his day was that Jesus was, one could say, yes, Jesus was God, but only in the sense that God made a kind of temporary, you know, theophonic appearance there, and God could exit his body as well whenever he wished, uh, which for Athanasius was, you know, deeply offensive. Jesus becomes God at, you know, his conception, and he's, you know, God even when he's, you know, dying on the cross. And um, the the body, you know, participates in the Godhead of the person. It can't make a division. And for Athanasius, uh, the easiest way to demonstrate that was to take a look at the temple in the Old Testament, where there also you couldn't make a division between uh, the veneration of God and the building in which he was housed. Yes, we're not committing idolatry. Uh, exactly. Know, yeah, by doing that. Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, this is another example of ontological leakage. You might, yes, because you would say that the body, as it were, the body and flesh of Christ, you know, has, you know, become divinized right. by you know, the God who dwells therein. And the same thing, in a sense, would be true, of course, you know, you know, of, of Mary. And I, I think the, the Marian image, at least for me, is very powerful because, you know, seen against this background, we, can, we realize that any veneration that's shown towards Mary is wholly reflective of and dependent on the divinity of Christ. Right, right. Uh, right. It, it derives all of these Old Testament temple metaphors uh, from the Israelites venerating the temple, not because they loved its stones, 
but because right. of the God who dwelled within. And that's the same logic that informs the veneration of Mary. Uh, it's because of the God that dwelled within her womb uh, that she becomes a person of, you know, uh, that we uh, that we venerate and, and should venerate. Uh, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception uh, makes no sense. Uh, <laughs> if, if we aren't talking about the High Holy One who inhabits eternity taking up residence in her womb, she has to be that sacred vessel. Uh, exactly. That's a very good point, and many of the the Greek fathers, you know, who aren't going to, you know, perhaps sign on to the Immaculate Conception in its full Roman sense, do make precisely that point. In other words, they're, you know, almost 80% of the way there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, utilizing, again, this temple theology in order to fill out the character of Mary that's not explicit in the New Testament. But once you've made the identification of Jesus as fully God, um, and you see what happens when you approach God in the old, um, you can't, you know, really make any other determination about Mary than that. Yep, I agree. Gary, thank you once again for all that you do with this uh, remarkable book. Uh, very quickly, 15 seconds. Are you, do you have a new project you're working on? Yes, I'm working on, you know, narratives about forgiveness in the Bible. And um, I haven't given full scope to the book, but perhaps it'll be the way in which uh, the Pregazio in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy is, you know, anticipated in okay. a theology of forgiveness in the Old Testament. Very good. Thanks, Gary. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. My wife Janet's ancestors arrived in America on the Mayflower, but we never knew that the Catholic missionaries arrived in Florida 50 years earlier. Visit the site where the cross was first planted, where Mass was celebrated, and the first Marian shrine in the New World. Renew baptismal vows in the cathedral in its first baptismal font. Hope you can join us in La Florida, the land of flowers. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net.
Well, thank you so much uh, for being with me. And let me remind you that you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, go to the Cresta Guest Archives, where we'll have, uh, again, uh, information, the book list that Karen McClellan uh, shared with us earlier, and uh, the outstanding article on Poland today uh, by John Sikorsky. That'll be there. And then um, you can also go to the bookstore, where the books that we referred to today uh, with Karen, and then, of course, this remarkable uh, volume that I may dwell among them, Incarnation and Atonement in the Tabernacle Narrative. The seri- it's a serious piece of uh, scholarship. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.